True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, and Sweatin Live. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Tiso Blackstar Group or any of its affiliates. We didn't know who we were looking for. It was, um, it could be anybody. Every day that is uh, out uh, and walking around the streets of South Africa, it can be another female that fall victim to him. And it became an obsession to me to apprehend him as quick as possible, to stop him from killing another innocent person. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is episode 9, The ABC Killer. This case was suggested by quite a few listeners, including Megan Repko and Nico Fisser on Facebook, and Dominique on Instagram. I'm pretty sure it must have been suggested by a few others, so if I missed your name, please feel free to shout at me on social media. I thought I'd do a serial killer case again, because I've only covered one serial killer so far, and I know it's an area of true crime that fascinates many of us. The man known as the ABC Killer was also known by a few other names, including the South African Strangler and the Gauteng Strangler. Most commonly, though, he's known by his own name, which has been sending chills down the spines of South Africans for decades. Moses Satole. In researching this case, I used a variety of resources, including documentaries I found on YouTube, one of which is by our very own South African YouTuber, Mfundo Ndala. Whenever I cover a serial killer case, my go-to is always Mickey Pistorius's series of books. For this case, I used her book Strangers on the Street. There are also a ton of online resources I used, and I'll reference the ones I found useful and accurate in the show notes. Something interesting that I discovered while researching this case is that there's a small piece of misinformation around the geography of Satoli's murders and how it relates to the moniker given to him. It's really not a huge problem, but I did find it interesting how many documentaries and sources simply repeated information they had found elsewhere, assuming it to be true, without actually verifying it. The story has always been told that the name ABC Killer came about because Satoli had started his murder series in Attridgeville, continued in Boxburg, and ended in Cleveland. Well, I'm here to tell you, that's not true. In a case like this, the only way I can wrap my head around it properly is to draw up a timeline of all the victims, which I did. I'll post this timeline on the social media forums as well as on our website. It took some time to sift through all of the research and identify all the victims' names, the dates on which they were last seen, and the dates on which their bodies were found, as well as the areas they were killed in. 
But when I did, and I looked at them all in order of when they were killed, it emerged that although Satorli killed in all of those areas, there was no particular geographical order. And if anything, it would have been that he killed predominantly in Cleveland, then Boxburg, and then in Attridgeville. But it just wouldn't be as catchy if we called him the CBA killer, now would it? As I said, it's really a small point, but I did find it a lesson in critical thinking for content creators and content consumers. Just because you've been told something over and over doesn't mean it's true. And as a result of my little side mission, there's a complete timeline of Satoli's crimes that you can print out and refer to as we go along in the episode. You'll find this episode to be in a bit of a different format to the usual, as I'll be including some additional sound clips, and there'll also be an add-on episode next week in the form of an interview with one of our listeners, who met and corresponded with Moses Satoli after his arrest. I think it is now high time that we got into the case. Let's meet serial killer Moses Satoli. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information in our show notes. On the 17th of November, 1964, in Johannesburg, South Africa, Simon Satole and Sophie Menezes brought the fourth of their six children into the world and named him Moses. The family lived a meagre existence, but managed to survive until a tragedy struck the family when Moses was ten years old. His father very suddenly passed away. Sophie was left with six children to raise and no income and the family soon lost their home. What followed was probably the desperate decision of a mother who felt overwhelmed by the loss of her husband and the dire financial situation in which she found herself. Sophie led her six children to a nearby police station and abandoned them there. Moses would later claim that his mother had threatened them with violence if they ever told the authorities that she was their mother. The young Satoli children were handed over to an orphanage in Benoni, where they spent a few months before the orphanage became too full, and the male children, including Moses, were put on a train and sent to another children's home in Dingaanstadt, KwaZulu-Natal. Moses would spend three years in this orphanage and would later claim that within its walls, he suffered some of the worst abuse of his life. He claims to have been emotionally, physically and sexually abused until he decided to run away and find his mother. Moses would, at this time, have been around 14 years old and he travelled more than 600 kilometres on his own, presumably with no resources, to get back to Johannesburg. It is alleged that when Moses located his mother, she turned him away, rejecting him for a second time in his life. 
Now we know what Moses would grow to become, and we also know that nothing could excuse his future actions. But if we just take this situation in isolation, it is an absolutely heart-rending image. This young boy, fatherless, abandoned by his mother once, then allegedly shipped across the country to experience horrendous abuse, escapes and travels several hundreds of kilometers to find his mother. And when he does, she closes the door in his face once again. Thankfully, one of Moses' older brothers had a job and a home of his own in Fosleris, a township on the East Rand. Moses moved in with his brother, and for a little while at least, experienced the stability of having a roof over his head and not suffering abuse. It was not to last, though, as Moses' brother lost his job and soon after decided to move to Venda, as he knew that he would soon be evicted from his home as well. It is alleged that Moses promised to move out soon after his brother, but before he did, he illegally sold the house and disappeared with the fraudulently appropriated proceeds. Moses travelled the country for a few years, taking odd jobs on farms and in mines, but eventually returned to the East Rand. Moses was sexually precocious from an early age. This is not abnormal for people who have been sexually abused as children, as they struggle to line up their unhealthy experiences of sex with a normal relationship. At the age of 23, however, Moses would take this to a new level, and the behavior he starts to display could not be blamed on his upbringing. On the 14th of September 1987, 38-year-old Patricia Kamalo was in Boxburg with her sister. They were both looking for work when they were approached by a man called Martin. Martin was charming and good-looking, and he told Patricia that he'd been helping two other ladies to find work, and he had found them excellent positions at a company, but the woman had failed to arrive. He asked Patricia if she would perhaps like to take one of the jobs. Patricia, unable to believe her luck, eagerly agreed, and accompanied the man to the train station, where they boarded the train and alighted at Geldenhuis Station, near Germiston. Martin told Patricia that they could take a shortcut through the felt to the company's premises, and she followed him. When they were deep into the isolated felt, Patricia says that Martin's persona suddenly changed. He turned on her, demanding that she give him her wedding ring and earrings. He then undressed her, tied her hands behind her back with her bra, and raped her repeatedly. Before leaving her, he threw her dress over her head. Patricia Kamalo did not report her rape. Nine years later, she would see her rapist again, though. Only this time, she would know him by a different name. Her attacker's name was not Martin. His name was Moses Satole, and Patricia was his first recorded victim. Moses Satole, having committed his first rape, was able to contain himself for a year, 
when on the 28th of September 1988, almost exactly a year after his attack on Patricia, he approached another woman with a job offer. The man originally called himself Moses, but later referred to himself as Samson. He told the woman that he had an excellent job opportunity for her, but she was already gainfully employed, so as a good deed, she instead gave Moses slash Samson the name of a friend of hers who she knew needed work, Dorcas Kobani. Dorcas was 26 years old and from Fosleris. She excitedly met with the man her friend had referred, looking forward to being able to support herself with the work he offered. Moses and Dorcas took the train to Cleveland and in a mirror image of the attack on Patricia Kamalo, he led Dorcas into a field and then turned on her. This time he was wielding a knife. He threatened to cut Dorcas to pieces if she didn't do what he said and then pushed her to the ground and raped her. After raping her, Moses sat next to Dorcas and tried to engage her in conversation. He told her that he had a girlfriend in Fosleris called Sibongile and that she had stolen jewellery from him. He wanted Dorcas to go to Sibongile's house and retrieve the items. He then asked Dorcas if they could have sex again. She refused and he raped her. He then started to beat her and attempted to strangle her. A man walking through the felt stumbled upon the scene and Moses released his hold on Dorcas and fled. Dorcas, terrified at the threats of violence from this knife-wielding man, also did not report her rape. Interestingly, Moses' story about having a girlfriend in Fosleris, called Sibongile, was actually true. He was at this time in a relationship with a 17-year-old girl by this name, but Sibongile knew him as Martin. The young girl would have her own stories to tell about Moses when the time came, but for now it was her 15-year-old sister that was in imminent danger. Sibongile had introduced her new boyfriend to her family, and they all felt comfortable around him. So when he arrived at the family home one afternoon, under the pretense of wanting to take the younger sister, Lindiwe, to visit her older sister, the girl willingly went with him. It was October 1988, just one month after his last attack. The pair took a taxi to the station and then boarded a train to Heldenhaus Station. In the same felt where he had raped Patricia Kamalo, Moses turned on young Lindiwe, and wielding a bottle of petrol, he threatened to set her alight. He slapped Lindiwe, and then raped her. After the rape, he throttled her until she lost consciousness. When she awoke, he threatened to kill her if she told anyone about the rape. He then took her back home to Fosleris. Terror kept Lindiwe in silence for another nine years. Moses had, by now, committed three rapes, and the violence in each had escalated. Four months after his attack on Lendiwe, 
Moses Satole would pick another woman. Having committed three offences, and not seeing a sign of police on his doorstep, I can only assume that Moses was starting to become a bit arrogant. As with most sexual offenders, he probably had an inflated view of the power he held over his victims, as none of them had reported him yet. Then he chose Buyiswa Swagamisa, and she would prove to be his undoing. In February 1989, Buyiswa was on her way to Germiston when she met a man calling himself Lloyd Thomas. The man told her that he could help her with work in Cleveland. She accompanied him. In the middle of the felt, Lloyd Thomas, who was, of course, actually Moses Satole, pulled a panga on the woman and told her to undress. Buyiswa would later explain that after his initial statement, he had held the panga to one side and told the woman that if she didn't want to have sex with him, she could run away, but if he caught her, she would die. Buyiswa, frozen with fear, did not run. He then slapped her and told her to get undressed. When she didn't move, he slapped her again and stripped her himself. He tied her hands behind her back with her underwear. According to Buyiswa, he could not get an erection, so Moses had forced her to kiss his neck and fondle his ears. He then raped her. After raping her, Moses told her that he hated women because he had once had a daughter with a woman who had murdered the child by poisoning her. There is no proof of this story anywhere. But I do find it interesting that Moses was already trying to justify his behavior to this woman, because she would become the new symbol of hatred he used in his future crimes. Moses left Buyiswa with her overcoat tied over her head and threatened to kill her if she reported the rape. Buyiswa, however, did report the rape. She was the first of Moses' victims to have enough courage to take her case to the police station. Unfortunately, nothing came of her report initially, perhaps because Moses had used the alias of Lloyd Thomas. Three months after the attack, Buyiswa spotted Moses in the streets outside her place of work in Cleveland. She phoned the police, and they arrived in time to arrest the man. In a shocking display of callousness and complete disregard for the victim, the police made Buyiswa travel to the police station in the back of their van with Moses. Moses took full advantage of being in an enclosed space with his victim and allegedly told her, Bitch, I should have killed you when I had the chance. This amazingly strong woman brutalized by her rapist and then victimized once again by the treatment she received from the police, still took the stand and testified against Moses Satoli, and she got him sentenced to 10 years for the rape. This would not be the last time Buyiswa saw her attacker, though. Moses Satoli had always denied raping Buyiswa, and started serving his 10-year sentence 
still proclaiming his innocence. His fellow convicts, however, weren't as convinced of his innocence. And in the jailhouse pecking order, rapists are way down there with anyone convicted of an offence against a child. Moses Satoli was brutally sodomized while in prison, and this only served to feed the hatred he felt towards Buyiswa and all that she would come to represent. Despite his growing hatred toward women during his first incarceration, Moses also met the woman who would become his common-law wife during this time. He met Martha while she was visiting her brother, who was serving time in the same prison as Moses, and it wasn't long before Martha was coming to visit him too. Martha's family was reportedly very unhappy that she had started a relationship with a convict, especially one convicted of rape. But I have no doubt that Moses, being the charming and manipulative person he was, convinced Martha that he had been falsely accused by his rape victim. Moses Satole was released in 1993 after serving seven years of his sentence. He moved in with Martha and her family and started to work as a mechanic with his brother-in-law, repairing vehicles in their front yard. It seems that Moses tired of this after a few months, though, and told Martha that he was going to start looking for another job. Martha and her family would report that Moses would dress in smart pants and a collared shirt every morning. He would roll up the day's newspaper and put it under his arm and set out to look for work. In early 1994, Martha had announced that she was pregnant with Moses' child. It was around this time that Moses decided to start going out to look for work. The decision seemed quite normal. Considering he had a child on the way, he needed to make money. The truth, however, was far more sinister, and I cannot help but wonder if Martha's pregnancy was a trigger for what came next. On the 14th of July, 1994, 19-year-old Maria Monama left her home in Mamelodi to go to Fasahi Street, Pretoria, to look for work. Any interactions with the man who would become her killer are unknown even to this day. But two days later, her body was found in a felt in Cleveland, almost 60 kilometers from her intended destination in Pretoria. She had been raped and strangled. Her killer had left a message on her legs. Written on her thighs were the words, She is a bitch. We will stay here until you understand. And, please, I am not fighting with you. Sadly, although Maria's body was recovered so quickly, her parents only discovered that she had been murdered four months later, when pictures of the crime scene appeared in a newspaper. This is usually where I would say that Moses Sotoli had claimed his first murder victim, but this case is a little more complex than that. I'll skip ahead and tell you that Maria's murder would be among the charges of which Moses Sotoli will eventually be convicted, but she would also be one of the victims to originally be attributed to another serial killer. 
That's right. I said another serial killer. I'll get into that part of the story in a bit. But keep in mind that the end of apartheid in South Africa saw the sudden movement of a huge amount of people who were previously not free to do so. Most of those people were honest, hard-working individuals who finally found themselves in a position to be able to look for work or study outside of rural areas. But some of those people had darker intentions in mind. For a few, there were suddenly a huge number of victims available to them. Victims whose families didn't necessarily have contact with them, or know their exact whereabouts. 1994 became the year that men with murderous intentions could wreak havoc on a transient population. And they did. Around this time, Moses Atoli had started a relationship with another woman in Pretoria. The relationship was brief, but Amanda Tete did introduce him to her family as her boyfriend. On the 2nd of August 1994, Amanda left the house at around 9 o'clock in the morning. She told her parents that she was going to pay a bill, and then she was going to the school in Pretoria at which she taught. When Amanda did not return that evening, her family's concerns started to build. Until a week after she disappeared, they visited John Forster Police Station to report her missing. A policeman there told the family that they did not have the required stationery to take the missing persons report, and that the family would have to go to Krugersdorp Police Station, which they did and eventually managed to report Amanda as missing. When another week passed, and they'd still heard no news, Amanda's parents went back to the police station, only to discover that her file had been lost. It was this poor administration and lack of effort in the case that would lead to a further tragedy. Unbeknownst to her parents at this time, 26-year-old Amanda had already been found. Four days after she went missing, her body was discovered in a mine dump in Cleveland. She had been raped and strangled with a piece of her own clothing. Her pantyhose and underwear had been stuffed into her mouth and her jersey had been tied over her head. Her body lay unidentified in the morgue for two months before she was eventually buried in an unmarked grave. This happened at the very same time that her parents were desperately trying to follow up on her lost missing person report. And all the time, Amanda had already been recovered. On the 17th of October 1994, Amanda's father identified his daughter's photograph in a newspaper, as had Maria's family. She was eventually given back her name, after all the bungling, and her body was exhumed so that her family could give her a proper burial within their own customs. Moses Satoli attended Amanda's funeral. Amanda's case, like Maria before her, would be embroiled in mystery for years to come. 
it was discovered that her credit card was used on several occasions, between the 2nd and the 4th of August, to draw cash. The ATM CCTV footage was accessed, and the identity of the man using her card would also become the matter of controversy at a later stage. Just a week after Amanda Tete had gone missing, 33-year-old Joyce Mashabele left her home in Yeovil to visit her sister. She never returned home. On the 14th of August, a man calling himself Moses Sima contacted Joyce's employer. By this time, she'd been missing for a week. He told her boss that he had found Joyce's identity documents and some paperwork that belonged to her lying in a field. He arranged to meet with her family and handed over the documents. When asked where he had found it, he said he couldn't remember anymore. Joyce's body was discovered on the 19th of August, 1994, in Lotus Gardens, Pretoria. She had been assaulted, raped and strangled with her own pantyhose. It was never confirmed whether Joyce's family were able to identify Moses Satoli as the same man who had handed over the documents to them. But I honestly don't think that it's a coincidence that the man called himself Moses. We're going to come back to Joyce's case when we discuss the twist that this series takes later on. 24-year-old Amanda Mokale lived in Shoshanguwe and was studying fashion design at a college in Pretoria. Between the 5th and the 7th of September 1994, Amanda was in Church Plain Square in Pretoria town, close to her college. She was approached by a Zulu-speaking man who offered her a job selling cell phones. She was overheard setting up an appointment with him for the following day. Amanda Mokale was never seen again. An eyewitness stated that the man was between 25 and 30 and an identikit was drawn up. Amanda's body was found on the M2 freeway in Cleveland on the 18th of September. She had been assaulted, raped and strangled with her own bra. As would become a pattern with these victims, it took almost three months for Amanda Mukale to be identified. Her case would be another that would be bounced around in terms of culpability. By this stage, the dates of victims going missing and bodies being found could become quite overwhelming to keep in order in your mind. I certainly found it difficult, which is why I drew up a timeline. If you're finding it difficult to follow, I strongly recommend opening up that timeline, which is in a PDF or JPEG file, on our website and on our social media pages. Just a, a quick aside, when I was drawing up the timeline, my long-suffering husband stuck his head over my shoulder and looked at my computer screen. In what is really a pretty normal statement in our house, but would probably raise a few eyebrows in others, he said, Oh, are you building a death tree? That's cool. Now that's when you know your partner gets you. Anyway, back to the case. 
on the same day as Amanda's body was found in Cleveland. Another body was discovered 20 kilometers away, behind the Angelo Hotel in Boxburg. Rose Mochotzi was from Mabupani, and she disappeared on the 15th of September after telling her family that she was going to meet a man about a job opportunity. She had been raped and strangled with her own underwear. Rose was the last victim found in 1994, and this is where the weirdness begins. In September 1994, the Brixton Murder and Robbery Unit created a task force to investigate the murders which had taken place in Cleveland, as well as two of the victims from Pretoria. The series was investigated under the moniker The Cleveland Serial Killer. Included in this series were the victims I've mentioned here so far, as well as others that I have not mentioned to avoid confusion. In total, 15 murders were being investigated as a series. A profile was drawn up of the killer and released to the public. A tip was called in, which led to the identification of one David Selepe as a person of interest. Selepe was a local businessman. It would later emerge that his business was in deep financial trouble, and at the time of his arrest, he had fled his creditors to Mozambique. He was arrested on the 15th of December 1994. When he was arrested, newspaper clippings of the Cleveland serial killer stories were allegedly found in the boot of his vehicle, and it was also alleged that blood droplets from some of the victims were found in his vehicle. Police would later say that during interrogation, Selepe had admitted to committing 15 murders in the Cleveland and Attridgeville areas. He had also told police that he had not acted alone. Selepe claimed that he had an accomplice, which he referred to as both Mandla and Tito. Police would later interview a man who was incarcerated called Mandla, who they believed had links to Selepe, but they would eventually discount the accomplice theory completely. Selepe, they insisted, was the Cleveland serial killer, and he had acted alone. Selepe allegedly led police to some of the murder sites, and on the 18th of December 1994, he was pointing out the site of Amanda Tete's murder. To be clear, yes, this is the very same Amanda Tete who was confirmed as Moses Satoli's girlfriend. But bear with me, we'll get there. You may recall that I said that there was cash withdrawn from Amanda Tete's credit card after her death, and that there was CCTV footage of the person using that card, while well, police used facial recognition to determine that the person in the footage was David Selepe. On the day that he took them to a murder site, they had not shackled his legs, as they would later say that the terrain was rough and they didn't want him to fall and claim that they had assaulted him. Three armed police officers accompanied Selepe that day. After pointing out where he had killed her, Selepe allegedly told the officers 
that he had hidden Amanda Tete's underwear in a plastic bag in the bushes nearby. He asked them to uncuff him so that he could look for it for them. They did so. Selepe found the bag and pointed it out. He then stepped back so that an officer could retrieve the bag, and when the officer bent down in front of him, Selepe grabbed a large stick from the ground, struck the police officer, and started to flee. Shots were fired, and Selepe was mortally wounded. The public outcry was huge, and the embarrassed police force had to explain why they felt it necessary to lethally shoot a man who was armed with only a stick. The Cleveland Serial Killer Task Team was disbanded as the police insisted that Selepe had been their man and that the series was solved. There were many things that didn't add up, though, and as the festive season came and went and the new year dawned, those questions became more urgent. In January 1995, the severely decomposed body of an unidentified female was discovered in a squatter camp near Attridgeville. The woman's cause of death could not be determined, and it was estimated that she had been killed sometime during early December 1994. Her identity has unfortunately never been revealed. Also in January 1995, 27-year-old Beauty Soko left her home to visit her sister in Klipchat, Pretoria. She never arrived at her sister's home, and her body was discovered on the 9th of February. She was naked, but her clothes had been placed on top of her body, and stones had been stacked on top of her as well. Her cause of death could not be determined, and she was identified by her fingerprints. A month later, on the 3rd of March, 25-year-old Sarah McConnell left her house to attend an appointment with a man who had promised her work. Three days later, construction workers arrived at a site in Attridgeville to work on a trench. They found a woman's breasts protruding from under the soil. Sarah McConnell's naked body was uncovered. On the 7th of April, 1995, Nikiwe Diko, 24 years old, left her home to meet a man in Pretoria regarding a job. Nikiwe would be missing for a full three months before her severely decomposed remains were discovered in Salisville, Pretoria. Nikiwe had been tied up with her own underwear. In this case, the killer started a progression in his methods. A garret was wound into the victim's pantyhose and that was used to strangle her. A garret is essentially any hard item, perhaps a stick or a comb, really anything hard and long, that is connected to a ligature to form a tool of strangulation. The garret enables the killer to use less effort to strangle than using his hands or just a ligature. And Mickey Pistorius had another idea as to why the garret may have been the next natural progression for the killer. When you strangle a person, you can actually release your hold and the person will regain consciousness.
and if you put pressure they can actually lose consciousness again so you can extend the period of death it's every serial killer's fantasy another strange progression in this murder was that a stick had been inserted into the vagina of the victim sadly because nikki Ware's body had been out in the elements for so long feral dogs had dismembered her her husband identified her by a wedding ring after the discovery of Nikiwe's body in July, a task team was set up under Superintendent Vinal Fulyun to investigate the recent killings in the Pretoria Atridgeville area. Fulyun collected many of the case files with similar modus operandi from the area, but the Cleveland cases were not included in this investigation, as the police still insisted that David Selepe had been guilty of those. The murders were now happening at such a rapid pace that the investigating team could almost not keep up. They would be attending the autopsy of one victim and be interrupted in the middle of it by a call-out to the next scene. Shortly after Nikiwe originally disappeared in April, a young mother, Letta Nglanda Mandla, had an appointment to meet a man in Pretoria for work. She didn't have anyone to look after her two-year-old son, Sibesiso, so she had to take him with her. Her body was found on the 12th of April in Salisville, Pretoria. She was fully clothed, but her hands had been tied behind her back with her bra, and she had been raped and strangled. Sadly, because she was not immediately identified, no one knew to look for Sibusiso. His body was discovered eight days later, a few hundred meters from where his mother had been. Sibusiso had head injuries, but the pathologist could not confirm whether these had been the cause of his death. Unfortunately, it is completely possible that the young child had died of exposure in the felt near his mother's dead body too little to find help on his own. On the 12th of May 1995, Esther Manecha left the Sunset View Cafe in Hercules, Pretoria. Those who last saw her said she was heading home. Her body was found the next day in a millie field close to her home. She had been raped and strangled with a piece of her own clothing. Her lower body was naked. 21-year-old Granny Ramele left her home on the 23rd of May 1995. She was headed to the Home Affairs office in town to collect her ID. It would be two months before her parents were notified that her body had been discovered in a wattle forest near Westford Hospital in Pretoria. She was fully clothed, but had been raped, and a garret was used to strangle her. She would be identified by her fingerprints. In the beginning of May 1995, 19-year-old Elizabeth Matetza had a new boyfriend. A colleague of hers would later state that he had been introduced to Elizabeth's boyfriend by the name Selo. When shown a picture of Moses Satoli, he had confirmed that he was Selo. Elizabeth worked at a cafe in Pretoria, 
On the evening of the 25th of May 1995, her employer dropped her off in Nina Park, Pretoria. Her naked body was discovered two weeks later in an open field. She had been raped and strangled. The next victim to be found would show another frightening progression in the killer's modus operandi. 25-year-old Francina Sitebe left work around midday on the 13th of June 1995. On the same day, a man was walking through a copy area in Attridgeville when he spotted a woman sitting up against a tree in the distance. As he neared, he called out to her as she seemed to have fallen asleep. When she did not reply, and he came upon her, he realized to his horror that the woman was not asleep. Francina Sitebe had been tied to a tree by her neck. A strap from her handbag, as well as her own panties, had been used, first wrapped around her neck and then fastened to the tree trunk. She had also been raped. The contents of her handbag were strewn around the copy, and her ID book was among them. This is how she was identified. Having started by manually strangling his victims with his hands, the killer had progressed to using a ligature, then a garret, to control their airflow, and now he was killing in the most sadistic way possible. Police believed that he had tied Francina to the tree and then sat watching, possibly for hours, as the brutalized woman slowly lost the strength to stand on her own two feet and collapsed, essentially strangling herself. The next victim to be found was Ernestina Mosebo. She was 30 years old and had left her sister's house in early June to look for work. Her raped and strangled body was discovered on the 22nd of June next to Rand Airport Road in Rocheville, near Cleveland. Her ID book was also discovered on the scene. On the 17th of July 1995 in Davidson Street, Boxburg North, a resident of the street had seen a man and a woman entering a piece of open land, which was private property. He had called out to the pair, warning them that they were trespassing. The man shouted back that he knew the area and wouldn't be long. A while later, the resident noticed the man exiting the field and placing something shiny in his pocket. The woman was not with him, though. The resident waited a while longer and then went into the field. He found the body of 25-year-old Josephine Langini. Her body was still warm to the touch, and the resident ran to call the police, who arrived on foot with a first aid kit, still hoping to save the woman's life. It was not meant to be, though, and Josephine was declared dead, having been raped and strangled with a belt. A manhunt was launched for a killer, but he had disappeared. The witness would later identify the man he had seen with Josephine as Moses Sotole. Around this time, Moses had fallen out with his common-law wife Martha, and he was living on the street. It is reported that he spent most nights living at Park Station in Johannesburg. I don't think that Moses chose the spot without forethought. 
The station was a nexus for several types of public transport. People came and went through the station for their daily activities from all areas. Many of them would have been seeking employment. On the 12th of September 1995, the body of an unidentified female was discovered on Heidelberg Road in Cleveland. She had been assaulted, raped and strangled. Sadly, she was never identified. It is now known that Moses Sotoli had developed an additional method in his ploy to convince his victims that he could offer them excellent employment opportunities. Sotoli had invented a fake charity organization, ironically called Youth Against Human Abuse. He had been temporarily employed at Afrox and even had one of the secretaries there help him to create a letterhead for the organization and an employment application. The secretary would later testify in his trial that she had even helped him to come up with a name for his charity. Moses started to use this organization to draw women in and make them feel more at ease with a seemingly official application form. Mildred Lapule was offered a clerical job at Youth Against Human Abuse with the promise of a promotion to a social worker within three months. She first had a telephone interview with Professor Williams. After this, a man called Piri called to tell her that she had qualified for a second interview, which she had to attend in person. On the 30th of May 1995, Muldred's husband, a taxi driver, dropped her off in Vermeulen Street, Pretoria, for her interview. Her husband recalled kissing her goodbye and wishing her good luck for her interview. The next time he would see his wife would be two months later. Her body was found on the 26th of July near a railway line in Ornestapuert. She had been raped and strangled with her pantyhose, and her panties were pulled over her head. Moses Sotoli was getting more and more brazen, and he would be arrogant enough to invite his next victim to his place of work. In July 1995, he was still working at Afrox in Pretoria. He asked 25-year-old Elsie Corti to meet him there, as he claimed he'd arranged a job for her. On the 14th of July, she left her home to head out to Afrox. Her body was discovered on the 8th of August in Ornestapuert. She had been raped and strangled with the strap of her handbag. Her hands had been tied behind her back and a cloth was tied over her face. The contents of her handbag were found nearby the next day and this is how she was identified. Not far from Elsie's body, police recovered the severely decomposed and charred remains of another unidentified female. It was believed that Elsie's killer had shown her these remains to terrify her before killing her. Police believed that the remains had been accidentally burned in a felt fire and not intentionally set on fire. The unidentified woman was killed either in late 1994 or early 1995. She has never been identified. 
Two further unidentified bodies were found in Ornestapurt in August. Both had been killed by strangulation after having been raped. Neither woman was ever identified. On the 16th of September, a police reservist, Solomon Kungwane, took his dogs for a walk at Van Dijk Mine in Boxburg on his day off. His dogs led him to the decomposed body of a woman. He left the area and called police. Over the next two days, police would comb the Van Dijk Mine area, eventually discovering what Mickey Pistorius referred to as the most horrifying scene she had ever encountered. Police found ten bodies, all female, all in various stages of decomposition. All were bound and strangled in exactly the same manner as the Pretoria victims. Investigators suddenly realised that they had a very big problem. Unfortunately, the discovery was leaked to the media, who published photographs of the scene in newspapers the next day. Had this not happened, police may have been able to put the area under surveillance and possibly catch the killer there and then. Another five women would lose their lives before the man responsible was caught. It would later be alleged that Moses Sotoli had read about the discovery in the newspapers and, of course, Realising that he could no longer operate in the area, he'd moved back to his old killing field of Germiston, Cleveland and Benoni. A task team was set up under the East Rand Murder and Robbery Unit, headed up by Captain Franz van Eekak. Having realised that the modus operandi was identical to the Pretoria killings, the two task teams were joined together, although the original Cleveland murders were still not included in the investigation, as police stuck by the narrative that David Selepi was responsible for those. The investigation into the victims found at Fundake Mine would eventually give police their first break in the case. So much publicity was given to the astounding find at the site that Nelson Mandela even called off a trip he had planned to visit the site and call for information and assistance from the public, which could lead to an arrest. The scene was scoured from the air, and an entomologist who had recently developed a method of using insect larvae to determine approximate dates and times of death was also called in. It was clear from the close proximity of the bodies that the victims had been able to see the decomposing bodies around them as they were led into the field to meet the same fate. Only six of the ten victims found at the Fundake mine were ever identified. They were Nelisiwe Zulu, Amelia Rapudile, Monica Vilikazi, Hazel Madikazela, Jabulile Matate, and Makobo Mahotsi. The other four women were buried without their identities ever being known. When investigators found Emilia Rapudile's ID book at the Fundake Mine, they traced her place of work, which was Johannesburg International Airport, later renamed O.R. Tambo International Airport. They discovered that she had last been seen at two o'clock on the afternoon of the 7th of September, 
She had left the airport with a man who had been offering her and some of her co-workers jobs. Amelia was 43 years old and lived in Krugersdorp. Her family was notified of her death. When police interviewed her co-workers at the airport, one of them pulled out an application form that the man who was offering them jobs had left with her. It was for an organisation called Youth Against Human Abuse. Amelia's bank card had been used to draw cash after her death. Another victim found close to Amelia's body, at the mine, was Monica Villacazzi. The 31-year-old woman had left her home on the 12th of September, telling her grandmother that she was going to attend an appointment for a job. When police went to her home to notify Monica's grandmother of her death, the lady had a strange and disturbing story to tell police. She said that on the day before Monica disappeared, she had taken a telephone message for Monica from a man called Moses. The man had given Monica's grandmother information regarding a job that he had for her granddaughter. It seems that at this point, Moses had become so arrogant that he had no problem using his own name in telephone calls. The story became darker, though, when Monica's grandmother told police that the man had phoned again, three days after Monica had gone missing. This time, the man called himself Jabulani and asked after Monica's whereabouts, but her grandmother said that she had recognised the man's voice as Moses Sotole. There would be a third phone call to the old lady, much later in this case, which I will discuss a bit later. The Fundak mine victims were starting to speak from their graves, and all fingers were pointing to one man. Another victim discovered at the mine was Makobe Mohotsi. Makobe was 27 years old and worked at an orphanage called Kitshaven. Makobe's co-workers said that the last time they had seen her was on the afternoon of the 14th of August, when she had told them that she may not return to work, as she had secured an appointment for a new job the next day. Her co-workers were well aware of what the new job entailed, because they had all been given application forms by a man who had visited Kidshaven quite regularly. Again, another application form was pulled out by one of Makobo's co-workers. Youth Against Human Abuse was printed in bold letters at the top of the page. The woman in charge at Kidshaven had told police that the man who had given out the forms had volunteered his services at the home. She said that he had been in and out of the home regularly, even bringing two street children there so that they could find shelter and perhaps be reunited with their families. Shockingly, the woman said that on one occasion, the man had come there with a photographer from the Star newspaper to deliver children and have photographs taken for his organisation. Some of the other women confirmed that once they had handed their completed application forms to the man, they had started to receive strange telephone calls, and some reported that a man had been lurking outside their houses. The forms, of course, required that the women provide their telephone numbers and addresses. 
the hunt was now on for Moses Satoli. His name and identity were verified, and an identikit was published on the front page of newspapers. Moses had been using his sister Kwasi's telephone number on the letterheads of his organization. When police arrived at her home, she confirmed that she had regularly received telephone calls from women regarding employment offers, and she would take their names and contact details, and Moses would call in and get the information from her. She told police that Moses no longer lived with her, and she had only had telephone contact with him for quite a few months. On the 3rd of October, Tamsin de Beer, a journalist at the Star newspaper, was sitting at her desk, getting ready for the day, when her phone rang. When she answered, a man calling himself Joseph spoke the words that would send chills down her spine. I am the man that everyone is looking for. Voice experts from both the US and South Africa would later confirm that the caller's voice matched that of Moses Sotoli. The following is an excerpt from a documentary which I will reference in the show notes. This is the voice of Tamsin de Beer explaining the phone call she received. I answered the phone and I heard the words, I'm the man that everyone is looking for. It was like alarm bells ringing in my head, like get your typing fingers going, get your wits about you. He would call from a, a phone booth and there was a degree of trust that we were building up. He was a very well-spoken, charming person on the, on the telephone. I mean, he had, a, he had an accent, so English wasn't his first language, so I imagine in his first language he was quite, quite charming. After the initial phone call, Tamsin asked Moses, calling himself Joseph, if he could call her again the next day, and he agreed. Tamsin had immediately alerted police, and a sting was set up to capture him. The phone call would be traced, and police intended to descend upon the public phone booth that the caller had been using. On the day of the sting, Tamsin's phone rang again, and it was the same man. The caller detailed many of his crimes to Tamsin. He described how some victims had behaved, and then, to prove that he was who he said he was, he asked Tamsin if she'd like to know where a victim was that the police hadn't found yet. He didn't want to be caught by the police. That was, in fact, his motive for calling. He wanted to outsmart. He described how some women would fight, other women would just give up. It was of some interest to him, I think, how certain women would respond and others would fight. I remember him saying that some women were as strong as men, and he really struggled with them. It wasn't a recent victim. He said there was a piece of metal um, over her body and that he had gone back and he had lifted up the piece of metal and found her there and she was basically a skeleton at this point. He then described where another body was, a relatively fresh one that she was... He said, hang on, and the phone went dead. There was nothing. And I was, I remember, on the line going, hello, hello, hello. I was quite alarmed that perhaps the police had shot him. Um, and I remember thinking... No, shame, you know, this, this poor man out there, this lost, broken person, which of course he was, but he was also a monster. The caller ended up giving Tamsin the location of two victims before being spooked by the presence of someone he believed to be police and fleeing. 
he had not been captured, but he knew that Tamsin had sent the police for him, and he was not happy. He called her again. Joseph character basically shouted at me about how could I have done that, but what did I do? We had a relation, a trust going, I broke the trust. Tamsin never heard from the man again. Police did find the two victims that the caller had described. The first was a woman, found under a sheet of corrugated iron, near Jupiter Station on the East Rand. Due to her skeletonized state, she was never identified. The second victim the caller had described to Tamsin was found in a ditch behind the railway lines in Germiston. She was identified as 31-year-old Beauty Ndabeni. She had left her home in Soweto on the 10th of October. She had been strangled using a garret and her hands had been tied with a pair of pantyhose. What concerns me about this murder is that it took place during the time that the calls were being made to Tamsin de Beer. Was Beauty killed so that the caller would have another victim to give to his new friend? Police used information that the caller had given Tamsin about his past to match against their prime suspect, Moses Satoli. It fit perfectly, right down to the dates he had given about his incarceration for rape on the first occasion. Moses seemed to realize that his time as a free man was quickly diminishing, but it seems that he wanted to be able to end his run on his own terms, or perhaps he was just really enjoying the cat-and-mouse game when he decided to contact another journalist. This time, it was Charles Mohani of the City Press. Unlike Tamsin, Mohani decided not to contact police, perhaps hoping he could get a statement from Moses and break the story. Mohani set up an appointment with Moses to meet at a railway station. Moses wanted his common-law wife, Martha, to attend as well, but the family decided that it would be better if Moses' brother-in-law went instead. Mohani and Moses' brother-in-law arrived at the railway station at the arranged time. Moses never showed up. On the 14th of October, another unidentified female body was discovered, tied to a tree by her neck with shoelaces. Shortly after this victim was discovered, Moses contacted his sister. He told her that he needed to protect himself and asked if she could have her husband bring him a gun. Moses' sister agreed, and they arranged to meet Moses at a factory in Bononi on the 18th of October. His sister then contacted the police. An undercover police officer, Inspector Francis Molovetsi, was planted within the company's security guards on the day. Moses arrived as arranged and asked a security guard to call his brother-in-law from inside the factory. The guard was about to proceed, as he knew nothing of the sting operation, when Molovetsi stopped him and said that they weren't allowed to call workers during working hours. He tried to keep Moses talking, while units moved in to arrest him, but Moses became suspicious and fled down an alley. Molovetsi pursued him 
and they met in the alley where Moses pulled out an axe and attacked the police officer. He struck him twice, wounding him before the police officer fired two shots, wounding Moses in the leg and stomach. Moses collapsed and was immediately placed under arrest. The police were terrified that they were about to have a replay of the David Salepi saga, and it is alleged that the investigator in charge accompanied Moses to the hospital and told the surgeon that was about to operate on him that he could not let the man die, and he needed to do anything within his power to save him. One would think that the surgeon would be doing that anyway, wouldn't he? Moses was under 24-hour police watch in hospital, but investigators were not about to wait for him to be discharged to question him. As soon as doctors confirmed that he was not going to be impaired, they started the interrogation of the man who had haunted their nightmares for the last two years. Moses Atoli, however, was not interested in talking. How they got him to talk is a matter of discussion, as some say that it was Moses that demanded a female officer, and others say that the police suggested it, as they believed he may talk to a woman. Either way, a female officer was brought in, and Moses was suddenly singing like a bird. There are also some reports that it was profiler Mickey Pistorius that had been brought in, we do know that she did interview Moses, but I'm not 100% certain whether it was on this occasion. Either way, what Moses did next remains the same. While vividly recalling his crimes, Moses Satoli became aroused and began to masturbate while he gave his statement. While he was on the subject, he had also told detectives that he had masturbated on some of the crime scenes when the victims had taken a long time to die. Moses initially admitted to 10 murders. He was charged with 38 counts of murder, 40 counts of rape, and 6 counts of robbery. He grinned from ear to ear as he stood in front of the judge and pleaded not guilty to every charge. It was agreed that he should be allowed to heal completely from his injuries before the trial started, and he was sent for a mental health evaluation, which found him sane and fit to stand trial. The trial of Moses Satoli officially began on the 21st of October 1996, a year after his arrest. When the victims' names were read out in court, it became clear to all present that Moses Satoli was being charged with the murder of some of the victims who had originally been attributed to David Selepe. In the preceding two years, presumably as South Africa was no longer under sanctions and now able to access technology and expertise from all over the world, DNA technology had surged in its accuracy and Satoli's body fluids were found on some of the victims that were originally thought to have been killed by Selepi. I will do a full clarification and comparison of the Satoli and Selepi situation a bit later, 
but from most sources I looked at, it seems as though the police simply shrugged off the fact that they had inaccurately attributed these victims the first time. There were at least 15 more victims killed in the same manner during the same time and in the same areas. But these women's names were not on Moses's charge sheet. In fact, to this day, police have never said which victims they believe Selepe was responsible for. All that they would say is that Moses was responsible for more than they charged him with, but they did not have enough evidence to prove those murders. Moses would be defended by Irben Yodan and Lena van Vey. Representing the state was Rieta Mankis and George Beloy. The court was sealed off with barbed wire to prevent the public from gaining access to Sitole. Enormous crowds of women gathered outside the court on each day of his appearance, singing, Sitole, why are you killing us? The state called 350 witnesses to testify in the trial, starting with his original rape victims. Two of the women, who he had raped in the 1980s, were added to his charge sheet, and all testified to show that his modus operandi had remained virtually unchanged from his first offence. One of the most compelling witnesses from those early days of the trial was Sibongile, the woman who had been 17 years old when she had entered into a relationship with Moses. It was Sibongile's sister, Lindiwe, who had been one of his original rape victims. Sibongile testified that her relationship with Moses had been extremely abusive and he would be charming and loving when they were in public, but vile and aggressive when they were alone. When Moses' attorney tried to claim that she was lying and over-exaggerating the abuse, she asked the courts if she may strip naked to show them the scars that Moses had left on her body. Moses had always claimed that his hatred for women had been born out of his alleged unjust conviction for the rape of Buyiswe Swagamisa. The claim was blown out of the water as his first rape victims testified that, at that time already, Moses was claiming a deep hatred for women as his reason for his acts. His attempts to strangle these early victims and tying them up with items of their clothing was compelling evidence that Moses Satoli was not pushed into the murders he would later commit by any injustices. These early acts were a dry run for his ultimate fantasies. Mickey Pistorius would testify that she had initially wondered whether all the murders were committed by the same man, but then she had placed the crime scene photos in sequence of events. She said that at this time, a clear progression had appeared. The early acts of rape had been his trial run. After his prison term, he had progressed to manual strangulation, then to the use of a garret, and finally to the method of tying his victims to trees to essentially have them strangle themselves. Satoli's official defence was that he was not guilty of all charges, 
and that he had been coerced into confessing, and that police officers had shown him the crime scenes, and not vice versa. Testimony around his acts of masturbation while he was confessing proved that he was under no stress to provide a statement. Although Buyiswa Swagamisa had already received justice for the crime against her, she testified in the trial to show how Moses's modus operandi had been distinct even at the time that he raped her. As the trial progressed and photographs of Moses's murder victims were shown, it became astoundingly clear that the bulk of the victims were very similar in appearance to Buyiswa. Although we know that Moses definitely did rape Buyiswa, he did seem to have developed a deep rage towards her, perhaps because she was the first to stand against him and refuse to be a victim. The Cleveland victims, which had been originally attributed to David Selepe, were the most difficult to prove. In the case of Amanda Tete, for instance, as I mentioned, CCTV stills of a man using Amanda's bank card after a murder were originally identified as David Selepe by police using facial recognition. During Moses' trial, however, two witnesses, including Moses' own sister, testified that it was in fact Moses in the pictures. It also emerged that Moses' DNA had been found inside Amanda Tete, but he was in a relationship with Amanda, so his DNA could have got there from a consensual encounter shortly before her murder. What are the odds, though, that a girlfriend of a serial killer would coincidentally be killed by another serial killer? Also, Selepi allegedly pointed out new evidence to the police at the scene, but it was unknown whether this evidence was ever entered into the system. Another victim, also originally attributed to Selepe, was Joyce Mashabella. Moses' DNA was also found in her body. Interestingly, however, another body was found, just 300 metres from where Joyce was. This victim's murder, however, was not attributed to Moses. It also emerged that another woman had last been seen in Church Plain, Pretoria, which was also the site of Moses' victim Amanda Mokale's disappearance. The woman was also found murdered, but her murder was not attributed to Moses. Monica Villicazzi's grandmother, who had been receiving calls from a man she identified as Moses, testified that she had received a third call after Monica's body had been recovered. By this time, however, Moses Satoli was already in jail. The man had called himself Mandla, and he had taunted Monica's grandmother, telling her that Moses was going to be acquitted, and that Monica had got what she deserved. The odd thing about the name the caller used is that David Selepe had named his alleged accomplice as Mandla before he died. The information about Selepe's alleged accomplice had never made it to the media. Is this another coincidence?
who was the man that called Monica's grandmother? If it was in present day, I would say that there is a possibility it was Moses himself, as it's not difficult for offenders to get their hands on a cell phone in prison. But this was in 1996. Cell phones were not very prevalent, and certainly were not being used as currency in prisons yet. Several women came forward during the trial to say that they too had been approached by Moses Sotoli. Some he had offered work to, but for one reason or another they had never taken him up on his offer. Others had brief relationships with him and brought the police pieces of jewellery that he had given them as gifts. Many of these pieces were identified by victims' families as having belonged to their loved ones. Another woman came forward to say that she had been involved in a relationship with Moses shortly before he was arrested. Maria testified that Moses had given her pieces of jewellery that were later proven to have belonged to his victims. Strangely, just a short while before Moses was arrested, he and the woman had fallen out, and he had walked into a police station and laid charges against her for stealing jewellery as well as raping him. The arrogance of this man astounds me. It seems to be a running theme with him where he would give girlfriends his victim's jewellery and then accuse them of having stolen it. Reporting it to police, though, takes this arrogance a step further, as not only would he be, was he a highly sought-after man at that time, and here he was, walking into a police station, but if police had gone to this woman's house and seized the jewellery, there is every chance that it could have been identified as belonging to the murder victims. Moses smiled broadly throughout most of his trial. Sickeningly, his smile was reportedly broadest when his rape victims were testifying about his crimes against them, or when victims' family members took the stand. His demeanour suddenly changed when his common-law wife Martha took the stand. She entered the courtroom, holding their then two-year-old daughter, who was asleep in her arms. As she passed him, he asked her to let him hold the child. Martha refused, and for the first time, Moses Sotole broke down in court. He cried throughout her testimony, and as she left the stand, Moses's victims, who had to watch him smile during their testimony, took great pleasure in watching him break down, heckling and laughing at him. Moses would also break down when the police officer that had captured him testified. The photographer from the Star newspaper, who had accompanied Moses to Kids Haven to take pictures of him delivering street children to safety, also testified. He said that Moses had called himself Patrick, and he had no reason to believe that his organization, Youth Against Human Abuse, was not real. Moses, he claimed, had come across as genuine, and he'd shown a deep concern for the safety of the youngsters. Moses had worked at a company as a truck washer for a time, and one of the truck drivers that had worked with him 
testified that he had started to get phone calls from various women claiming that they had been offered a job by a man who had given them his cell phone number. The driver stated that after Moses' arrest, the phone calls had stopped. Perhaps the most shocking revelation in the trial came in the form of video evidence. It emerged that Moses Satoli had given an interview which was recorded on video while he was in jail, awaiting trial. The video was recorded by three fellow inmates, the men, Jacques Roca, Mark Halligan and Charles Schumann, were convicted murderers and also ex-policemen. The men had been involved in a diamond heist in which one of their accomplices had been killed. It is alleged that Charles Schumann had met Satoli while they were both in the prison infirmary. Schumann had said that Moses had wanted to commit suicide and he had asked Schumann to arrange enough tablets for him to achieve this. Schumann, aware of the heinous crimes of which Moses was accused, agreed, but convinced him that they should first make an audio recording of Moses confessing to his crimes, and that after Moses killed himself, Schumann would sell the recording and split the money with Moses' portion going to his daughter. Schumann said, that Moses had agreed, but when he'd started talking about the crimes, Schumann had been so horrified that he had told Moses that he thought that he should rather get a video recorder too. It is alleged that Schumann contacted the investigators on Moses' case at this time, and they smuggled video recording equipment into the jail. This allegation was never confirmed and the footage was strongly disputed by Moses' defence, but eventually it was allowed to be submitted as evidence. I have audio recordings of part of this interview, but the audio quality is so poor that I cannot play it here. The essence of Moses' statement, though, was that he admitted to killing 29 women. He said that he did not know who had killed the other woman. He denied having an accomplice in his crimes. He reiterated that he had killed the woman out of anger. Skuman asked Moses if he had killed the woman because he enjoyed raping them, but did not want to get caught. Moses responds, quote, No, I was not on a holiday. I was angry. End quote. Moses denied ever beating any of the women he had killed. His words were, quote, If there was blood, those were not my woman. End quote. Claiming that he could not stand the sight of blood, and that is why he had strangled his victims. Skuman asked Moses how long it takes to strangle a person, and Moses responds, quote, Maybe three minutes. Five minutes is too long. End quote. Moses' demeanour as he describes his crimes is completely flat and emotionless. On the 5th of December 1997, 
Moses Satole was found guilty of all charges against him, and he was sentenced to 2,410 years in jail, with a mandatory period of 800 years to be served before he could be considered for parole. The judge stated that he wished that the death sentence had not been abolished the year before, because if he could, he would take great pleasure in sentencing Moses Satole to the gallows. Satole has the highest body count of a convicted serial killer in South Africa, but he is not the most prolific. As his crimes only span two years, the most prolific serial killer in South Africa is Bulalani Mabai, who murdered 11 women and 9 children over five years. While Moses was in prison, it was discovered that he was HIV positive. At the time, it was determined that he only had between five and seven years to live. Outrageously, police allegedly did not inform Moses' common-law wife, Martha, of his HIV status, and she had to find out from a newspaper article. She had herself and her daughter tested, and sadly, both were also HIV positive. What came from this is one of the most disturbing things about this case for me. Moses Satoli received excellent health care in prison. Treatments, including free antiretrovirals and good nutrition, ensured that he would go on to live a long and healthy life. His wife and daughter, however, were not so lucky. At the time, antiretrovirals were not free to the unincarcerated public and both Martha and her daughter would die from the disease within 10 years of Moses being convicted. In my opinion, you can add another two victims to Moses Sotole's list, not to mention the injustice of a prisoner receiving free treatment that innocent victims are not given access to. In 1997, after Moses was sentenced, a magazine journalist, Angela Mokolwa, attempted to get an interview with him. She was one of many journalists he had turned away at the time, but in 2003, Moses made contact with her, asking if she would be willing to write his biography. Angela agreed and started to communicate with Moses to work on the project. Angela would later say that it did not take long for his behaviour to become disturbing. In her words, he started to behave like a psychopath. His letters became more and more inappropriate, and he started trying to control her movements, until eventually Angela realised that she could be at risk if she continued with the project. She called off the arrangement with Moses and shut down all contact with him. A few years later, she would resurrect the project, but she turned it into a fictional piece, which was published under the name Red Ink. The behaviour that Moses displayed here would not be a once-off event, as you will hear when I interview Charmaine O'Neill, who met and was pen pals with Moses Satole. Moses Satole served the first part of his sentence in Pretoria's CMAX prison, 
but in 2012, without warning, he was moved to a prison in Bloemfontein. Moses attempted to sue the Department of Corrections for moving him without his consent or prior knowledge. He claimed that being in Bloemfontein meant that he could no longer receive visits from his family. The outcome of this case is not clear, but the last article I could find in 2017 stated that Moses is still incarcerated in Bloemfontein. Perhaps one of the most frightening things about Moses Sotoli is that he wasn't hiding in the shadows waiting to pounce on his victims. He had relationships with many of his victims. He met their families. Even with the women that he offered jobs to, he would often have more than one interaction with them before he killed them. Gerard Lapiskachny would say that the pleasure that Moses attained from his crimes was not just from the act of killing itself. Lapiskachny says that it was the entire process that gave him pleasure, from selecting the victim, to grooming her, gaining her trust, even while he was walking with his victim to use public transport methods. And after the murder, seeing their jewellery worn by other women. It was all part of the fantasy for him. Mickey Pistorius said that she believed that Moses Atoli was addicted to having an omnipotent power over women. When he was killing, he saw himself as a god. This is underpinned by the fact that he progressed into methods of strangulation that could extend his victim's suffering and where he could be in control of allowing them to breathe or cutting off their supply of air at a whim. Pistorius explains that his addiction stems in part from the abuse and rejection he experienced as a child. Each time he killed, he felt as though he was taking back his control a little bit at a time. Moses Sotoli was without a doubt a heinous killer, responsible for far more deaths than the 38 he was convicted of. However, there is a part of the story that remains unresolved, even until today. David Selepi Were Moses and David working together? What are the chances that there would be two serial killers operating in the same area at the same time with exactly the same modus operandi? The profile drawn up for the killer in the Cleveland, Attridgeville and Boxburg murders fit Salepi on more counts than it did Satoli. But Satoli could be physically tied to more of the murders where Salepi could not. If you have a look at the timeline I created, you will note that there are no murders attributed to Moses Satoli during the period September 1994 to December 1994. This is because of the police's insistence that Selepe was responsible for the murders that occurred during that period. So, Moses killed five women in two months and then just stopped for three months, only to start again in January and kill at least another 33 women in 10 months before being arrested. That doesn't make any sense to me. Unless he was comatose or incarcerated, and we know he was neither, 
I highly doubt that Moses Satoli managed to stop killing for three full months. I think that a far more likely scenario is that many of the victims attributed to Selepi were actually killed by Moses. Moses always denied having an accomplice, but Selepi allegedly admitted to having an accomplice. And one of the names he gave was the same name as one of Moses's many aliases. Again, I don't know if I can believe that that is a coincidence. One of the murders that Moses absolutely refused to take responsibility for was the young mother and her toddler son, Letta and Sibisiso. While Letta fits Satole's victim profile, I cannot see him having taken the life of a child. If Letta had arrived for their appointment, unexpectedly bringing her son with her, I cannot see Satole going through with the murder. He was more controlled than that, in my opinion. Perhaps he did kill Letta and knocked Sebasiso unconscious, hoping to give himself time to get away. And maybe the child died of exposure. Satole's history with children, in terms of helping street children, and his connection to his own daughter, make it very difficult for me to believe that he was responsible for Sebasiso's death. But then again, Many serial killers have the same background in terms of abuse that Moses claimed to have, and they make children their victims instead of adults. So perhaps the care that Moses showed for street children was just another manipulation, and perhaps his apparent adoration of his own daughter was simply part of his God complex. She was a part of him, so she was worthy of adoration. U.S. profiler Robert Ressler looked at both the Cleveland series as well as the series which was attributed to Moses, and his opinion was that Selepi was definitely involved in some of the crimes. He also said, some of the scenes appeared to have the hallmarks of two different killers. It is extremely rare for serial killers to work in pairs, and if Satole and Selepi did, I don't think it was for more than one or two victims. I do believe that Selepe was a killer, but I don't think he was near as prolific as Satole was. Some will say that his initial prison term turned Moses into a killer. And yes, we do sometimes see sexual offenders turning to murder after their first conviction for rape, because they develop the idea that if they kill the victim, she can't talk. I personally don't think that happened with Moses Satole. I think that the nature of his initial crimes proved that he was always going to become a killer. It was just a matter of time. Moses Satole was a ticking time bomb from the moment his mother abandoned him at that police station. Intervention along the way would have helped, but none was forthcoming, and instead... Circumstances simply fed what was growing inside him. As I did when I covered the station strangler, I feel that it is only fitting to end this episode by reading out the names of the women who lost their lives, because they are the ones that matter. They were mothers, they were daughters, 
They were friends. Most of them just wanted to find a job, to provide for their families and themselves. But instead, they found a predator who robbed them of their futures. So for a minute, let's remember them, and not Moses. Maria, Amanda T. Joyce, Amanda M. Rose, Beauty S. Sarah, Nikiwe, Letta, Little Sibosiso, Esther, Granny, Elizabeth, Francina, Ernestina, Elsie, Josephine, Oscarina, Makoba, Neliswe, Amelia, Monica, Hazel, Agnes, Beauty N, the eleven unidentified women who were never given back their names, and all the victims whose names didn't appear on a charge sheet. It is you we remember now. Thank you for listening to episode 9. Don't forget that next week, instead of a spotlight episode, I'll be releasing the first of our interview segments, TCSA People. I'll be interviewing Charmaine O'Neill, who visited and was pen pals with Moses Satole. So I tried a few different things this week, including adding a few additional sound bites related to the case. I'd love to hear what you thought about the different formats. Please connect with me through the show's pages on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And if you enjoyed the episode, please invite your friends to listen too. I appreciate all of your support and I'll chat to you soon.